Let's get to the scriptures this morning. We're in our second installment in Advent, and we're in Philippians 2, 5 to 11. I've entitled our time together this morning, The Great Humiliation. Last week was The Great Exchange, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. If you didn't have a chance to grab that sermon, go out and grab it online and listen to it this week and catch up. We're in a three-week or four-week Advent series, um, just drawing our attention towards the meaning of Christmas and why it matters. And so we're in Philippians 2, uh, 5 uh, to 11, the great humiliation. You know, Christmas is, uh, Christmas is very sentimental. Um, I enjoy all the parts of it, the lights, the, the trees, the family, the great food, the desserts, the singing of, of, of these hymns and carols. Uh, I mean, the exchanging of gifts is a reminder of the greatest gift that was ever given, which was Jesus Christ. All of that is very sentimental, and, and it's good, and it's healthy and right. But there's also another demeanor or another attitude that we have to adopt around Christmas. And that attitude is described in Philippians 2, 5 to 11. The advent, the coming of Christ, when we talk about advent, we're talking about his first coming, right? Some 2,000 years ago, and his future coming. It's two sides. Advent has two sides to it. And, and when we think of advent, we often don't think of the proper response. Let's put it like that. The proper attitude that it should produce in all of us which is humility, and that's why I've entitled our time this morning, The Great Humiliation. It's the profound humility that Advent points to that instructs us on why it's such, the, such a high virtue for us to pursue as gospel followers, as believers, we're to pursue humility. We're to walk, as James says, we're to walk in humility. And so Philippians 2, 5 to 11 captures that and um, this is an amazing text. Um, you're you're going to see it. Um, it's really a, a kind of pride-crushing text. As you get into the context, you'll see why Paul was writing it. He wasn't writing it necessarily for Christmas. He was writing about Christology to curb something that was going on in the Philippian church, right? But we're here, we're celebrating Advent, and we're celebrating the fact that God became a man lived a perfect 33 and a half years without diminishing his deity, which you're about to see uh, this morning. He's in the category of all himself. He's one of one, right? And if he had not come, we would not have hope. We would be in despair. We would not have the forgiveness of sins. I mean, we would be a hot mess, right? We, we know that, and so we're grateful for that. But also, Christmas should produce in us a demeanor of virtue and attitude that I want to draw attention to um, this morning. So we're going to look at this pride-crushing Christmas text, all right? So it's a little bit different angle on it, but I think you'll see it in a second. It'll make a lot of sense. Let's read it, shall we? Second, uh, Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Have this attitude among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a bond slave, being made in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient 
How obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, now God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name at Christmas. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is an amazing text. It it is staggering to think that God would leave heaven and come to earth to die for our sins. That is the wonder of Christmas. That is staggering. What's also staggering is that pride is the mother of all sins. I mean, it really does some serious damage in all of our lives. I would venture to say we all struggle, myself being the leader of the pack, uh, with uh, pronounced pride, and therefore we need profound humility to compensate, and the Advent actually should accomplish that. As you think about Christmas, the overwhelming sentiment should be humility from us as it's demonstrated with the Lord Jesus Christ. What's cool about this story in Philippians 2, in this account, it's a, it's a riches to rag story. We all love a rags to riches story. A lot of movies are made about a rags to riches when you have nothing and God you know, blesses you and you have something in the future or there's some profound thing happens that Hollywood loves to grab. A rags to riches story. This is quite the opposite though in Philippians 2. It's a riches to rags story. It's, it's the opposite and it should be for our attention this morning. Jesus left the glories of heaven came to the slums of earth, born of a virgin, became a man, born in a dirty, smelly stable to a homeless couple on a non, in a nondescript town called Bethlehem. This is truly a riches to rags story, and I want it to be the topic of our morning together as we study the scripture. The only Listen to me, the only fitting response to the advent, to the incarnation of Christ is profound humility. It is the one attribute that we have to adopt, one attitude, right? And so it's the Christmas virtue. That's what I want us to study this morning. Why does it matter? How do we get it? Because Christmas really, when you look at it closely and you dive in here, it screams humility, that a king would leave a kingdom and come to this earth in the way he came is staggering. It's beautiful. It, it, should, it should kind of knock you off your high horse. It should humble your pride, so to speak. And it would be at the top of your Christmas wish, I hope, that as you come in, even into the new year, as you come into 2024, you'd be thinking, man, I gotta, I gotta keep working on my pride. I know that's a constant prayer of mine and I hope to put it on you to be your constant prayer and maybe at the top of your list of gifts that you'd want is the gift of humility in your life and in your home. We have to humble our pride like John the Baptist. You remember when he came on the scene and he looked at the backdrop of Christ coming and he said, I must decrease. How do we get low? My proposition is the advent, Christmas actually accomplishes that very thing theologically. It's an incarnational demeanor. It's an incarnational virtue, an incarnational attitude to set one's mind upon as Philippians 2 calls us to. 
Now, a couple of comments. I know we're parachuting in, so let me give you a couple of comments about where we find ourselves in Philippians chapter 2. First, Philippians 2, 5 to 11 is one of four major Christological passages. So if you want to have a high Christology, you want to truly understand who Christ is, there's four places you go. Philippians 2, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, and John 1. Those are the four big Christological texts. So if you want to fully develop Christology, or if you were wanting to present Christ in your home and work through it with your kids, you'd probably spend some time in John 1, Philippians 2, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. Those would be the places you'd go in your scriptures as you systematize your theology and you build a Christology. Those are the four big ones. So we're looking at one of the big four here, right? We're looking at one of the big four. It's high Christology, and it should, if we do it right this morning, if I'm successful in my teaching, it should inspire humility. That should be the profound response. When we leave here today, we ought to be going, man, that is humbling. The birth of Christ is staggering. It's humbling. Well, in order to appreciate 5 to 11, you have to understand what's before it. Because what's before it is crucial. All right? So let me give you a little more context. We're in the Philippian letter to the Philippian church in Ephesus there in and around. It's 10 years old. So at the time of the writing of Philippians, it's 10 years old. What had happened as you study the book of Philippians in its totality is the church began to get on its nerves, on each other's nerves. And you start getting a whiff of it in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. You see Paul call for the first time, hey, unity. Unity should be prized. You need to be unified. Then he gets into Philippians 2, and he, he says, how do you do unity? Well, unity is accompanied and can only be accomplished by humility. You have to have pronounced and profound humility. And they're clearly on each other's nerves. But if you keep reading in Philippians, you get to Philippians 4, and you realize the problem. There were two ladies. Look at Philippians 4, verse 2. There were two ladies, Iodia and Syntyche, who were having a personal dispute, a relational dispute. We know it's not theological because Paul would just light them up and say, hey, knock it off. This is what you do based on the scriptures. So we know it's interpersonal, not theological in nature. And so he says, I entreat Iodian and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. There it is. There's disunity. So after 10 years, they'd kind of all gotten on each other's nerves. These two in particular had caused kind of a little bit of rift in the church. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So they're believers in the Philippian church. Interpersonal conflict happens. We get on each other's nerves, right? You got sinful people trying to honor the Lord, but we all from time to time will get on each other's nerves. And so it's created a bit of disunity. Well, humility is the oil that keeps the intersecting gears of community from not grinding. You have to have humility to get to unity. It's the how you get to unity is through this humility, and they lack some humility. So Paul says, listen, you need to get on the same page. Look at Philippians 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement 
If there's any comfort or love or any participation in the Spirit and any affection or any sympathy, he said, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Get on the same page. Have the same love for one another. Being in full accord and of one mind together. Well, how do you do that? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but instead in humility count others or esteem others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you not look not only to his own interest or her interest, but also the interest of others. There's the backdrop. There's the context. He says in verses one and two, hey, you guys need to think alike. You need to get on the same page. Number two, you need to die to yourself. Selfish ambition is the, the, the besetting sin to unity. It's what's pronounced. You've got to get rid of your selfish ambition. And then you've got to actually live for others. You've got to actually esteem all others better. So anytime you walk into church, when you step on campus, when you drive up, you have to put on this attitude, this Christmas attitude, this Christmas demeanor, this Christmas virtue, you have to put it on. You have to robe up and say, okay, I'm coming into church. I'm coming into worship with a bunch of people and I need humility, right? I need pronounced humility in order to accomplish all of that. And then what happens next is Paul says, listen, let me tell you how it, the example, let me give you the motivation. Philippians 5, 2, 5 to 11 is the divine exclamation, the compulsion, the reason why you pursue humility with everything you got, the reason why this Christmas you adopt the attitude. This is how it works in marriage, in life, in everything you do. You've got to humble your pride, right? And so he says, listen, this is what it looks like. And he talks about Jesus going from riches to rags, this riches to rags story to prove a point. But remember the context. The context is disunity, interpersonal conflict. He tells them, here's how you do it. And now in Philippians 5, 2, 5 to 11, this is why you ought to do it. Let me give you a reason why you ought to commit your life to pursuing humility at all costs. Why you ought to learn to get low and stay low. How to get low and stay low. Why? Your Savior did it. That's why. And that's the point of Philippians 2, 5 to 11. If he did it, how much more should we, right, be doing it as a body, as a community of believers, as Christians? How do we get low and stay low? How do we get there? We need to think and act like Jesus, Paul says. So stop fighting Stop the disruption, stop the disunity, stop theological. Instead, esteem others better than yourself, principle number one. Principle number two is think about what Christ did for us. Think about the Advent, think about Christmas. Christmas isn't just about cookies and lights, as wonderful and awesome as it is. Christmas is about humility. It's about profound, overwhelming, pronounced humility in our lives and how we need to adopt that. That's why he says, look out on the heels of it. Verse five, have this same mind in yourselves. What's the same mind? What he just said, humble yourself, esteeming others better than yourself. Have that mind, that same mind as Christ adopted by his very actions. And then he says, let me tell you about the coming of Christ. Let me tell you about Advent and how Advent 
ought to sober up the intoxicating effects of pride. That's what Christmas, that's the Christmas spirit, as we say. That's the Christmas spirit that as a believer, we have to adopt. Well, how do we get this mindset? If that is the mindset, I've declared it up front, how do we get it? Three ways. Self-denial, self-emptying, and self-sacrifice. That's how we'll frame up this passage and how we'll walk through our time together uh, this morning. Self-denial, self-emptying, and self-sacrifice. The great humiliation as described in the incarnation that's before us. Jesus, here in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, is the epitome of pronounced voluntary, I'm now adding a word, pronounced voluntary humility, which is the chief attribute of a believer. And this text points us to Christmas. And this text points us to the advent. So let's look at self-denial first. This is how we're gonna accomplish it. This is how you gain it and keep it and practice it and continue to live out and walk in humility. It takes massive, copious amounts of self-denial. Follow how Jesus thinks. Look at verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Here it is, verse six. Who, Jesus, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, squeezed, hung on to, death gripped, right? This is, folks, the clearest place in all of scripture to the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is indeed God himself. Christ Jesus, who, he said, existed The word existed here is a reference to his pre-existence. He has always been God. He didn't become God when he became a baby in that manger. He was God. He pre-existed as the second person of the Trinity. So some people would say at the incarnation, he became the son. He became Second person, he became God. That's not true. He's always been. He pre-existed as God. And so before the incarnation, he was the second person of the Trinity. He was and is and still is God. Colossians 1 verse 18. So it's a word, this pre-existence, speaking to his essential, unchanging deity. He's always been God. He's always been God. That's why it's a riches to rags story. So Paul is quick right out of the gate here to establish that his deity did not change at his birth. Nothing changed there. He added to his life humanity, but he was always God, always has been God. Before his incarnation, he was God. He continued to be God at his birth. He showed the glory of God from all eternity. So Paul chooses his words very carefully. Look at the text in verse six. Who through, who through he was in the, uh, Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's careful, morphe, his physical countenance, his physical appearance. He 
became a man. He was 100% God, not a mere image of God. He wasn't a facsimile of God. He was 100% God. He added to his godhood man. He was a 100% man, 100% God. So at the incarnation, he is the visible manifestation of the essential nature of God who had, he had been radiating through all eternity. He had always been God. So the humility to think that God, very God, truly God, would leave heaven on a mission from the Father as second person of the Trinity, always existed at God, and come to this earth to die for our sins is an astounding reality, right? It's staggering. It, it's just mind-boggling. It demonstrates for me his profound, profound self-denial. But verse six continues. It says that he did not regard equality a thing to be grasped. It's really in the technical language of the Greek language, it's he refused. He refused. He did not, and this is not ordinary, right? An ordinary king would grasp authority. He would grasp uh, and fight for his authority. He didn't. He, he, he's not your ordinary king. He refused. He did not. He did not count his equality with God a thing to be hung on to. It's amazing. A thing to be grasped means to snatch. The art of seizing by a robber, to take. He didn't regard that as something he would take right? He would hang on to. Jesus refused to exploit his godhood. He refused to exploit his deity. Instead, he voluntarily gave up for eternity, from eternity, to come to earth and die for the sins of this world. This is unbelievable. Do you see how humbling it becomes? Who, though he was in the form of God, right? The morphe of God. He did not counted equality with God, a thing to be grasped and hang on to. He would go on mission. He would fulfill the Father's will. He refused to let it get in the way of saving us. God the Father had a plan to save us from our sins. We needed a perfect sacrifice. He said, I'll send my one and only son for our sin. And Jesus said, I'll go. I love you so much. I'll humble myself. I'll leave second person of the Trinity. I'll leave eternity and heaven is known, and come here to die for our sins. He was in full possession all the time of his divine nature. It's amazing. It's absolutely humbling. This was the mind of Christ. This is what he was thinking when he thinks about the incarnation, when he thinks about giving his life for us. This is the mind that we should be adopting, this same kind of mindset, this same kind of pronounced humility. He didn't jealously guard his divine right and prerogatives. He said, I'm, I'm willing to go. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to redeem people. This is total, complete Self-denial. When the appropriate time came, he was not selfish. He voluntarily yielded up his life in self-denial. It's crazy. How do we do verse four? How do we do verse three? 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. How do we do that? By looking to the Savior. By looking at Christmas and looking at the profound humility. Jesus didn't hang on to it. Jesus wasn't arrogant and prideful and hanging on to his, his position in heaven. Humility is modeled in the Trinity. This high Christology, this Trinitarian theology and Christology, it's modeled in the Trinity, the humility that Jesus had when he came here. How do we do verse four? How do you live for others? How do you esteem others better than yourself? The next time you cry foul or that was unjust or that is unfair, oh, brethren, remember your Savior. Remember Christmas. Remember what he did on the cross Dying to self is not only just a one-time event in the incarnation, it's the daily discipline of every single believer. It's major here, but every day of our lives, we've got to get up and choose self-denial over feeding our own pride. And Christmas should humble our pride. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, who though... He was in the very form of God, the essence of who God is. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be hung on to and say, I don't want to go. I don't want to help them. They're pathetic. They're sinful. They don't deserve it. He didn't say that. He said, I'll I'll go. Send me. I'll, I'll, I'll die for the sins of the world. Profound humility is manifest in continuous self denial. That's how you get it. If you want to be humble, it starts with you denying yourself in every single context, in every single day. It's a daily death that the believer experiences. Second, self-emptying. Self-emptying. Profound humility means you have to empty yourself. Self-emptying. Although he was 100% God, clearly established in verse 6, he also became 100% man He made himself a man. It was a deliberate choice. It was a voluntary. Nobody forced him to go. It's called the condescension, the great condescension that he would leave heaven and come to this earth and become a man. I love the but there, verse seven, but strong contrast, Allah, but strong contrast, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Strongest contrast possible. Although he was God, this didn't lead him to fill himself up, to to reign as king of kings. It allowed him to be humble. It allowed him to actually empty himself That's what's crazy. The text says he emptied himself. This in theology is called the kenosis, all right? The self-emptying. It's in the aorist tense. It happened at a definite point of time in the past that Christ came at Christmas and he emptied himself, the kenosis. It means to make no effect, to make himself nothing, It's the graphic language and expression, the kenosis of his pronounced humility. We serve today and celebrate at Christmas this self-emptying Savior, this self-renunciation. It's incredible. 
Now, there's tremendous debate about what this means. Let's talk about it for a second. What does it mean to empty oneself? What did it mean for Jesus to empty himself, to leave eternity and to come to this earth and to empty himself as Paul articulates in this Christological text We need to define the limits. Let's talk about the limits of the incarnation. First, he did not cease to be God. Second, he did not give up his divine nature or his attributes in the coming and in the incarnation, theologically. And third, he did not exchange deity for humanity, right? He didn't do those things. Then what did he do? That's what he didn't do, but what did he do? He set aside, without surrender or loss, it's very important, the independent exercise of his divine attributes, and he didn't set aside that. He just set aside those, the use of those, the exercise of those. He surrendered, he he surrendered basically his status in heaven, right? He gave up the face-to-face with God as second person of the Trinity, to come to the earth. He gave up his independent authority for submission to the Father's will to execute the plan. He did not subtract his deity. He assumed humanity. It was an addition, not a subtraction. He added humanity. He is 100% God. He became 100% man. That's what makes this text so profound and powerful. Nobody forced it on him. Do you see that? He emptied himself, reflects it. He did it. He chose the self-emptying, the independent exercise of his attributes. Himself he emptied. Himself he humbled. You could say it that way. He willed it to be so. He desired it to be so as an example for us. He volunteered for the job. That's what he did. He volunteered for the job, a deliberate and selfless act. He was willing to, be, to leave heaven to be crushed by the Father for our sins. And then he uses these two participles here in the text to help us kind of get our minds around the extent of the incarnation. How, how far did he go? Like how, how far did this accomplish well, look at the first one. He's taking on the form of a slave. He took on the morphe, same as the word before in the passage, the form, the essence of a slave. He adopted the attitude of being a bond slave, a first century slave. This was not a great, a great thing to be a slave. It was menial. He would be the poorest of the poor, how he was born, how he was raised, it just wasn't great. He didn't come as a king riding in on a white horse. He wasn't born in a Ritz-Carlton there in Bethlehem. He came with humility, right? He took on the form of a slave. He said he emptied himself by taking the form, the morphe of a servant, the lowest possible social strata. That's what he said, I'm gonna become. So God leaves eternity, right? Second person of the Trinity, becomes a man, 100% God, 100% man. And when he does so, he doesn't choose prominence. Again, he chooses pronounced humility. He said, I'm gonna be a servant. 
It's more, way more than just looking like an ordinary guy. He would have fit in. He would have looked very ordinary. This is game-changing. He could have just been an ordinary guy that fit in, but not only did he add to his ordinariness when he came, he took on the form of a servant. He abased himself, right? Humility. He put himself in the way of ill treatment, despised, no rights, unpopular. Nobody looked out and said, boy, the slave is what I want to be. That's what I aspire to, right? He was a perfect slave. The incarnation is the manifestation, the form of God in the form of a slave. Think about that. Think how mind-boggling that is. Think about how that informs our humility, right? That he would be God and he would take on the form of a slave, not a doctor, not a professor, not a president, not a czar, not a ruler, not a high priest. There was a million opportunities he could have taken on, a million personas he could have adopted, but he chose to become a slave. All the options. He chose to be last in line. He chose to be the last guy to be picked. Why? So that when we pursue unity, we would understand that comes through humility. We have to have the same mindset. He denied himself and he emptied himself. Mark 10, 45 says this, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It makes sense why Jesus took such a strong stance against pride and arrogance. Well, it makes sense when you know what he did on our behalf in the incarnation. He's made in the likeness of a man. What does it mean to be made in the likeness of a man? I think it's important just to reference a few things. He, he's the perfect high priest. He can relate to you. He can relate to me, right? So he knows, he knows what pain is like. He knows what sadness is like. He knows what temptation is like. He knows what hunger's like. He knows what sleeplessness is not like. He knows all of that. He, he, could, he could experience it as, a, as putting himself as a slave in the likeness of man he fully participated in the human experience so that he could relate to you. He could care for you. He could understand. He can say, I've been there. I've done that. He's the perfect high priest. It's crazy. Again, God, second person of the Trinity said, I'll become one of them. And when he chose to become one of us, he chose a menial slave. He chose to live 33 years and then die instead of enjoying fellowship with the Father during this period. He emptied himself of all of his rights, of all of his pride. He temporarily suspended the exercise of his attributes. He always was God, but he said, I'll put him on hold so that I can be the sinless sacrifice, what we talked about last week. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Why? So that we can become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Self-emptying, this is the continual discipline of the believer. You got to get up all the time. You got to wake up and you got to put your feet on the floor. You point your toes towards the door and you got to say, I'm going to die to myself today. 
This day is not about me. Uh, everything around me is not about me. It's self-emptying. It's self-denial. And it's modeled in Christ. And so he's trying to help the Philippian church who are on each other's nerves. He's saying, listen, this is how you do it. By understanding what Christ did on the cross and what he did to his, his birth narrative here in Advent, in the incarnation, that informs our humility. Third, self-sacrifice. Profound humility demands self-sacrifice. Look at verse eight. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Being found in the schema, the appearance of a man. It's not just a repetition of verse seven, which he's already referenced. He's shifting from a heavenly focus to an earthly focus. He just wants you to see the humanity and the brutality that he experienced on our behalf that would inform your humility. It's the Christmas hymn, right? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. That's what he's trying to do here in verse eight. He would look like an ordinary guy, but there was so much more to Jesus. So much more, as you can see from this kenosis passage. He humbled himself. He willingly did it. He made himself small. He made himself low. He humiliated himself, right? And the question is, how low did he really go? It's a good question. How low does he really go in this text? Like, how far did he go? He said he was obedient to the point of death. I would say all the way, wouldn't you? He's, he went all the way. He's all in, all the way to the point of death. The father was the object of his obedience. It was the father's plan that a sinless one would die for the sinful many. He sought exclusively to execute the Father's plan and to execute the Father's will. It was the Father's plan. So how far did he go? All the way to the point of death, the incarnation, what we're celebrating at Christmas, all the stuff that's around us, everything's pointing to his willingness to obey the Father, to become a bondservant, and to take on the form of a man so that he could live 33 years and die for our sins. All the way, that's called all the way humility, right? All in, all the way humility. Humility always says that, whatever it takes, whatever's in the best interest of others. That's the disposition of a Christian. That's the disposition of your leadership style. That's the disposition of the elders. That's the disposition of every single one of us. Whatever it takes, if Jesus could go all the way to the point of death, we have to be willing to go all the way and to be humble and to pursue humility. Jesus' sacrifice was full and complete. He paid in full our debt. Nothing, and I mean nothing, could distract him from this mission. He was a finisher, right? He even said in John 10, verse 18, nobody takes my life, but that I lay it down freely. It's unconditional. He didn't just do it for his closest buddies. He didn't just say, I'm going to come for my, my A-team. 
No, he came for people that rejected him. He came for, for his enemies, sinners. And then he adds a day in there to even go one step further. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And you could just put a period there. That'd be sufficient. You get it. Okay, I understand the theology. But he does it, comma, even death on a cross. It was an ignominious death. It was not easy. Death on a cross? It's the most striking detail here of his humility. That he would brutally die. He could have just not even lived a life. God could have put a plan in place. Look, you're going to come. You're going to be there about a month, 30, 45 days. And then I'm going to, you know, we're going to go up on a hill. We'll deal with it and be done. No, the plan was someone had to die. So this perfect man has to die this scandalous death on the cross, this shameful death on the cross. And that's what I love about Philippians 2, 5, 11. It's the whole thing, the birth all the way to the cross, all the way to the consummation at the end, which we'll see in the coming verses coming up. It wasn't a natural death. It was a brutal death. Naked, humiliated, treated as a common criminal, right? I mean, the crucifixion was borrowed from the Persians. The Romans had refined it and made it even more rigorous and torturous, right? It was the, it was the death of deaths. It was the horrible death it's like dying a thousand deaths, historians remarked. Folks, this is a rags, a riches to rags Christmas. This is a riches to rags story. This is so mind-blowing and mind-boggling that it should just catapult us into the pursuit of humility. Can you imagine what was going through Jesus' mind as he executes the Father's plan? vicariously and voluntarily. I'm going to die for these crazy, sinful people. Yeah. You might be thinking, well, I, I didn't participate. I wasn't there at his death. You actually were because your sin was there. My sin, your sin. This is why we need this profound humility. This is why Paul's bringing it up theologically all the way. He went all the way to the point of death to make it crystal clear, this divine exclamation that you must, as a believer, pursue the virtue of humility. His death gives us the ability to die to ourselves on a daily basis. I hope you stop this Christmas. I hope you enjoy all the sentimentality. I want you to be all in. Christmas is an awesome time of year. I love Christmas. But I also want you to not only have the sentimental side of Christmas, I want you to have the serious side of Christmas. And that's the profound humility that accompanies it. As Paul would say in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, right? Christmas screams humility. It's the text of all texts. It's one of the big fours that just said, listen, he was God. He stepped out of eternity. Rich, profound, pre-existent God left eternity to come and die for our sins. I mean, it's, 
It's unbelievable. And to that end, there will be exaltation. He who humbles himself, Proverbs says, throughout the New Testament says, will be exalted. And that's exactly the case with our Lord Jesus. Look at verse 9. Therefore, because of this kind of humility, because of this kind of self-sacrifice, self-emptying, and and self-denial, therefore God has highly exalted him. The word highly is super, super exalted him. Like super, it's superlative, right? He super exalted him, highly exalted him, and bestowed him on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You have a choice this morning. Either you choose to humble yourself now or humble yourself later. It would be my strong recommendation for myself and for you. Let's all do it now. Let's all humble our pride. We know that pride's the mother of sins. Like it's brutal. And this passage, this kenosis, the incarnation should absolutely stun us, stagger us, put us on our heels and think, wow, how can I have this pronounced pride when my own Savior, whom I love, right, died on the cross for me, came to this earth, left heavens for the slums of this earth? That's crazy. Everyone will acknowledge this veracity, this truth. Everyone. Either now you bow the knee or in heaven when you stand before God, you will bow the knee. Everyone will bow to this God made it so and such. There's a reckoning day coming, right? It's true. But most people when they think of Christmas don't think about humility. And I just thought it would be healthy for us to stop in verse five. Have this mind among yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. What mind is that? This humility, this profound, this great humility that is demonstrated in our Savior as manifest in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So I don't know where you stand with the Lord today. I hope you're humbling yourself. I hope you're humbling your pride. I just know that I need to get low and stay low. You need to get low and stay low. And if you never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, we would commend that you do that. You'd humble yourself. And you would see the whole picture, the birth narrative to his death, to his exaltation. It's the full package. And that's why it's one of these high Christological texts here. Real technical, but real significant. Every word mattered for Paul. But remember why he wrote it. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, so that we would adopt the same mindset that Christ had, and that's humility. So when you think of Christmas this year, And next year, really you think about Christ every single day. It should produce profound humility. Let's pray together. As you're bowing your head and you're closing your eyes and you're thinking about the sermon and worship team's coming up to get set to sing us out this morning. Man, This is an amazing passage. Staggering, is it not? He humbled himself and became a man. He humbled himself and became a slave. He humbled himself and died on a cross. I mean, does it get any more intense? And we celebrate he comes into this world 
with this humble entrance in a smelly stable, barn animals, barn smells all around, no Ritz-Carlton, no 800 thread count sheets, nothing. Just came in humility to a nondescript town. Humility is self-denial, self-forgetting, self-emptying, self-sacrifice. We got to decrease. That's what Christmas ought to do. It ought to decrease us. It shouldn't inflate us. We shouldn't be arrogant and proud. It ought to deflate our pride, right? Father, I just pray that you would do your work in our hearts. I'm pretty confident we all struggle with pride at some level, in some degree. But I just pray that you would use this Christmas text this year, this Advent, this incarnational text, and it would produce in us this profound humility. Lord, only you can do that. You modeled it. You want us to walk in humility. You showed us the way. Lord, help us to adopt your attitude about this life. In your name I pray, amen.